If I was Biden, I'd be out there every single day saying, look at these low unemployment rates. He could yell that all day long. It's not going to change the 7.9 inflation rate. Whether he improves his messaging on unemployment, there's no getting around the fact that every time anyone pays for literally anything, people are feeling the fact that the economy is broken. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, before we get started today, I want to tell you about a new podcast that has joined The Lost Debate Network. It's called The Desi Crime Podcast. And what I love about this show is that there's so much true crime out there, but it's mostly centered on the West, right? Like, we were all fans probably of Serial or To Live and Die in LA and all these wonderful shows that are riveting about crimes that happen over here. But Desi Crime, which is one of the most popular shows in all of India, and it's also super popular throughout South Asia, it takes us on a journey through towns and cities across India and tells us about crimes, about gender violence, political violence, corruption. It's super riveting stuff, and we want you to check it out. Uh, And their hosts are young, super talented research. They do all the work themselves. They do the research, they do the hosting, they do the editing, and we're super excited to bring them onto our team. And so you can check them out um, at the Desi Crime Podcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your shows. Uh, and we're going to be working with them over the next few months to, to really increase their YouTube presence as well. And so we'll report back about how you can check them out on video as well. Uh, with that, Corey, where are we going to start today? On today's show, Amazon gets delivered a union. We'll discuss whether this is a sign of more to come. March was yet another strong month for the job market, but you sure wouldn't know it by looking at Biden's poll numbers. We'll talk about why that might be. And at least for a lot of people, comedian Louis C.K. was canceled until he won a Grammy this weekend. We'll get into that whole controversy. But first things first, over the last few weeks, we've seen several major media outlets quietly confirm 2020 reports over Hunter Biden's mysterious laptop. Now, the New York Post was the first to break this story back in October of 2020, and seemingly all mainstream media outlets and tech platforms dismissed the story or rebuffed the allegations at the time. Now, Ricky, uh, you are a New York Post contributor, and I'm really curious to get your take here. First things first, walk me through what exactly is in this laptop. Okay, so this goes back to 2020 when Hunter Biden left a laptop at a repair store in Delaware, and the owner gave it to Rudy Giuliani, which is an interesting move. But um, Giuliani gave the scoop to the New York Post and they went through the hard drive's content. And I think he actually gave the physical laptop to the FBI, but copied the hard drive. And the content is pretty damning. Both personally, there's there's drug use, there's pornographic uh, images. It's pretty clear that he was sleeping with prostitutes. But I think that's the personal element to it is less concerning to me because he's a private citizen doing his things. But what he was doing as a potential foreign lobbyist is demonstrated in his emails. And there's a ton of different connections that he um, had that he did not disclose adequately, or at least it's alleged she didn't adequately disclose, um, including connections to a Ukrainian energy company called Burisma Holdings that was paying him up to a million dollars a year. CEFC China, which is a Chinese energy company from which he got about $4.8 million. He had vehicles paid for by uh, Kazakh oil oligarchs and he got diamonds from Chinese energy companies. Um, He helped or attempted to help Libya recover frozen assets that Obama had frozen during his administration for a $2 million retention 
rate plus the success fee had he done that properly. And this comes after he had investigations into him for tax fraud that had gone back for years, but had broadened into money laundering claims. And then now he's being investigated under the Foreign Agents Registration Act because he potentially did not say, I am working as a lobbyist for these foreign interests. And so you work for the New York Post as mm -hmm. well. And the New York Post broke parts of the story back in October of 2020, right before the November yeah. election. So what did the New York Post report back then and, and how were they received? Um, I think the biggest story was the Ukrainian Burisma Holdings connection that they broke, as well as some of the personal images that were very um, compromising of him as well. And it was received pretty badly. It was October right before the election, and there was just widespread condemnation of it as misinformation, Russian disinformation, without really any evidence that that was the case. Uh, a lot of mainstream media outlets just flat out ignored it when it was broken, even though that's a very major story, obviously, leading up to an election. Um, and then New York Post, their whole Twitter account was shut down. Anyone who tried to retweet it or open the link were getting warnings that like there's misinformation and disinformation. Facebook censored the content. You can share it. It was pretty much an all out assault without any direct refute or any evidence that this was not real. And also just from a common sense standpoint, like we have these very compromising images of him. So at least some of it is legitimate, but it was just kind of flatly dismissed. And what's interesting, right, is that Biden didn't come out and deny this, but yeah. what wound up happening was they used the social media crackdown on the story as sort of evidence that it was specious, right? They would say, well, yeah. if if the social media companies are censoring this, then of course, like it's, it's suspect. The New York Times in its own reporting did the same. And uh, a sort of cadre of intelligence, former intelligence officials came out a couple of weeks after the, the October report came out, basically, you know, alleging or saying that this could possibly be Russian misinformation, right? So it seemed yeah. like there was a pile-on effect back then. Yeah, absolutely. And um, since the, since that time in 2021, Politico kind of changed their tune with a, a playbook about how these appear at least in part to be legitimate. And then slowly more and more outlets have let on. The New York Times quietly removed the claim that it was unsubstantiated, just deleted the word from an article without um, saying anything about it. And then on March 16th, the New York Times published an article about Hunter's uh, investigations more broadly. And in the 24th paragraph, essentially buried the lead and just kind of offhandedly said, oh, and by the way, these emails that turned out to be real suggest this way down in the middle of the article. That should have been the headline. Like we suppressed this story for like a year and a half now. And New York, New York Post readers have known this since October of 2020. But oh, surprise, this is this is real. And then the Washington Post uh, analyzed the laptop themselves um, and they published a breakdown of the Chinese deal. I give them a lot more credit because they wrote an op ed about how this is a time for reckoning the editorial board and, you know, actually fessed up to the fact that this was suppressed and it was important. But um, regardless, this is the sort of journalism that should have happened in 2020 when this first came out. And this investigation should have been way more widespread than just the New York Post. To the best of your knowledge, was Hunter Biden under any investigations prior to the collection of this laptop? Yes, he was already under investigation for um, being behind on his tax payments. I think it was like a million dollars that he owed. And I believe he took out a loan recently and paid that off. And so he's still being investigated for that, but he's likely to get off on those charges. But there's that original uh, probe into him has broadened into money laundering into um, this foreign actor's sort of suspicion that's surrounding him. So that that initial investigation is still ongoing, but much broader now. 
So he was being investigated for tax fraud or tax evasion, but not the foreign lobbying stuff. Not yet. initially. Um, I, I'm not sure what the chronology is, whether the laptop was what led to that, but um, certainly I think it's going to be evidence used against him at this point. And, and it seems like there's the question of whether Hunter Biden broke the law, but then there's also ethical concerns around Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it centers around Ukraine because Biden was at the center of Obama administration policy on Ukraine, which in mm -hmm. and of itself is a problem if his son is yeah. you know, being paid by prominent companies in Ukraine. But there was also this question of whether Biden you know, he pushed for the, the senior most prosecutor in Ukraine to be fired. And this was at the center of so many things, including the Trump impeachment. I think this was the thing that, that Trump was trying to get Ukraine to investigate. Biden pushed for this, this prosecutor to be fired, and he was. And I think where I come down on this is I want to believe that Biden, and there's, there's not a lot of evidence that Biden fired this guy because of his son, but I think given how murky all the reporting around this has been and, and the lack of just forthrightness we've seen mm -hmm. from Biden, he hasn't done himself any favors in this because it is true that the EU and other countries were pushing for this prosecutor to be ousted and an overwhelming majority of the Ukrainian parliament uh, voted to oust this guy. And this guy was like accused of like having like diamonds and fake passports and all these other things from his extortion rings that he was in, in the middle of. And so it seems like there was credible evidence that this guy was corrupt. But at the same time, I think Biden opened himself up to this criticism here by not fully disclosing what his son was doing and not being forthright as these reports came out. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, he wouldn't be or Hunter wouldn't be the first to use his last name as sort of a way to facilitate deals and, and grease deals internationally. But um, there's also suspicion surrounding Biden himself. There's some emails that refer to the big guy who's getting a 10 percent cut. And obviously there's we don't yet know if that's for sure Biden. But there are a lot of people that are suggesting that that would be kind of the logical character in that yeah. deal. Wow. Well, uh, you know, in, in thinking about the implications of this, I think this is the big story here, in addition to the Biden family, is the media. And Bill Maher had, had something to say about this just the other day. So the New York Post got a hold of what was in the computer, came to them through Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon. So, yes, of course, when Rudy Giuliani says, I've got some evidence, you take that with a giant thing of salt. <laughs> but, but not two years. It didn't take two years. It looks like the left-wing media just buried the story because it wasn't part of their narrative, and that's why people don't trust the media. Yeah, I agree with them on this. I also agree with them that, the, you know, Giuliani and Bannon didn't do themselves any favors by repeatedly pushing baseless conspiracy theories and outright lying to the American public. And so I think that's, given that they're the source of the original laptop, I'm a little bit sympathetic to to treating this with skepticism in the beginning, not the exact way that they did it. I don't I don't think that the there was reason to think that Russia was behind this or any of that. I don't know where that came from. I'm, I'm a little bit sympathetic to people who treated this skeptically in the beginning, but after two years now, I feel like they should have been able to verify this. Well, I think that the idea that this possibly came from Russia came from the fact that this story dropped in October of 2020, right in the middle of a very contentious election. In 2016, we have clear facts we have clear facts that tell us that russia interfered in that particular election with this type of material yeah that's fair and so i believe that that may have been the argument but i also agree that you know we shouldn't have been shutting down entire uh, twitter accounts and things like that it just it just doesn't look good for the media here yeah and even if russia was the source that leaked legitimate documents that were damning of him that doesn't change the fact that there are 
really damning things in this material. And the instinct of the media on the right, on the left, doesn't matter where, should always be to find truth, to investigate it. You can you can and should be cautious until you know. But right. the most important thing is to do everything you can to find out. Yep. And that was just clearly not done. And Mar is completely right that the timeline on this is just super wonky. It's been way too long. New York Post readers have known this all along. And there's no there's no reason for me to say that there's anything wrong with them saying, well, I don't trust the mainstream media now because of it. Right. Well, we'll keep an eye on this story. So for the first time in Amazon's history, employees voted to unionize last week. Some say this is just a shot in the arm that unions need to reassert themselves after decades of decline in America. Now, Ravi, as the resident union buster around here, uh, <laughs> this must really get your blood boiling, huh? Well, I'm also a Staten Islander, so this is, I'm conflicted here, but, but in all seriousness, I feel differently about public sector unions than I do about private sector unions. And I'm not alone. And this actually, going back in American history, even FDR uh, used to make this distinction. So this is him talking in 1937. He said, meticulous attention should be paid to the special relations and obligation of public servants to the public itself and to the government. He says, the process of collective bargaining, as usually understood, cannot be transplanted into public service. So even like one of the most pro-labor presidents we've ever had made this distinction. And the reason why he made that distinction is because uh, public sector unions have a monopoly on essential services, so they can basically hold the, the the people hostage. And I feel very different about private sector unions. And in this case, as we'll get to, I think Amazon didn't do itself any favors here. And I think in many ways deserved what was coming to it. Yeah, I definitely come down on the, the same side as you, where I'm honestly kind of indifferent about whether a private sector unionizes publicly. I feel completely different. But in terms of this situation, you know, if if the workers want that, I don't really care. If Amazon wants to try to prevent it through ethical means, I don't really care. But it seems that by a narrow margin, um, the workers did vote for it, uh, about 2,600 votes versus 2,100 against. Um, and this comes after a lot of allegations of like fast shipping rates, of a lack of um, adequate social distancing, and uh, allegations that workers were actively sick in the very beginning of the pandemic, which honestly wouldn't really surprise me because Amazon's demand was so high and the demand for workers obviously shot up. Um, and so, yeah, uh, Corey, what, do you know anything about what's behind the, the unionization efforts? And I think Christian Smalls who put everything together. Yeah, Christian Smalls was working at this facility in Staten Island, a facility known as JFK 8. Uh, he was working there at the height of the pandemic, March 2020, said that he was encountering employees who were visibly sick, asked management, hey, we probably need to shut down for two weeks to get everything under control. They refused. He didn't stage a walkout sometime around that time, and he was promptly fired after that. Now, Amazon claims they fired Smalls because he violated social distancing guidelines mm -hmm. during that walkout. But clearly, his organizing efforts probably also played in a part of him being fired. Um, and so that's after that, he collaborated with another individual, Derek Palmer, who was still working at the facility in Staten Island. And they got together and they launched this union, Amazon Labor Union. It's an independent union. They weren't connected to any of these like national unions, which makes this such an extraordinary victory. And they just late, they just for, for months and really years on end, they organized, they organized, they got the people on their side. And Amazon did a really terrible job at trying to persuade people to not join the union. They basically tried to make Christian Smalls the face of it. They said, this guy is not intelligent. This guy is inarticulate. This guy is going to lead you guys down a really terrible path. And that just backfired spectacularly. We got the juggler. We went for the juggler. 
And we went for the top dog because we want every other industry, every other uh, business to know that things have changed. We're going we to unionize. We're not going to quit our jobs anymore. You know, when COVID-19 came to play, Amazon failed us. They dropped the ball. They lied to the public saying they're doing all these things. None of that was the reality of our situation. There's a lot of different issues to talk about when it comes to Amazon. But I can tell you what, Amazon doesn't become Amazon without the people. And we make it, we make Amazon what it is. And as we see, this was the first successful effort of an Amazon facility to unionize like this. And this is the this is like, you know, a lot of people are on Twitter saying this is one of the biggest things for unions in many, many years and many, many decades. And as you've pointed out, Ravi, unions used to have a lot of power in this country. They don't really anymore. That power has been declining and free fall since the 1960s. And is this the shot in the arm that unions need? Is this going to lead to more people unionizing or is this going to lead to a backfiring where companies like Amazon are going to do more? I mean, Amazon spent more than four million dollars on anti-union efforts uh, last year alone trying to fight stuff like this. So it kind of it really begs the question, which side is going to come out better here? Right. And and the numbers are pretty staggering. 1955, one third of the non-agricultural workforce was unionized. Now it's down to 10.3 percent. And it used to be that private sector union members dwarfed those of the public sector. And ever since 2009, those numbers have flipped now where there are more public sector union members than private sector unions. So private sector unions are really struggling right now. But I totally agree with you. I think there's a saying that uh, tragedy requires hubris. And I think Amazon, I think coming out of their Bessemer victory, I think got a bit hubristic here. You know, they thought that this was going to be an easy win for them, uh, but they learned not to mess with Staten Islanders. Yeah, it was the culture of Staten Island, which is so different from the culture of Bessemer. I'm not from Bessemer, but I'm from Alabama. And down there, unions are just not that big. I think only 6% of Alabama workers are, in, are members of a union, whereas in the state of New York, 22% of workers are members of a union. So up here, the union roots are just a little stronger. And down in Bessemer, they're not. And so Amazon counted on that victory in Bessemer, thinking it's going to be the same here in Staten Island ended up being the exact opposite. There are a lot of people still coming out on the anti-union side here. Not a whole lot, but you got people like Jim Cramer on CNBC who is saying something to the effect that this is going to lead to Amazon not being able to tell people when they should be able to be at work and not be able to schedule people properly. I think a lot of that is the anti-union rhetoric is kind of like the boogeyman of the unions. Oh, this is going to make it where the companies lose control. Yep. But ultimately... There needs to be some more rights for these workers in these places that are working, you know, excessive hours, and they're just not really making enough money to make ends meet in a place like that. Well, this comes as Howard Schultz is reassuming his role as CEO of Starbucks while they're dealing with a unionization effort. We can't ignore what is happening in the country as it relates to companies throughout the country being assaulted in many ways by the threat of unionization. Six out of 9,000 Starbucks stores have unionized so far, but more than 100 are in the process of undergoing union elections. And this is rather significant. And, if you, and that's actually an SEIU effort. So that's a national union. So as you see these two things play out, uh, moving forward, I think the big question is what now? And I think the big question I have is, are the SEIU type efforts and these grassroots efforts going to converge and start working together or are they going to work separately is number one. And number two is like, what happens now, right? There's data that says that fewer than half of bargaining units reach a contract within the first year of organizing. So I think you're going to see Amazon fight 
collective bargaining agreement. You have to figure out how they're going to scale. Uh, there's early stage efforts to unionize Whole Foods, and there's a, an effort to organize Amazon Fresh in Seattle. And I think people are going to look at this and they're going to be emboldened. Do you guys think that this vote being successful is going to create more Amazon warehouses that are going to unionize? Yeah, I think, I think, I think yeah. definitely they'll try, but I think Amazon's going to fight it tooth and nail. And so we'll see what that fight looks like and how bad that makes Amazon look in the end. Well, they have every reason not to give in on the collective bargaining agreement here, because if if this organizing effort shows increased wages, which is one of the biggest things that they're asking for and better working conditions and all that, people around the country are going to look at this and say, all right, we're in on that. Yeah. Whereas mm-hmm. if they punish this union and extract every possible pain point from these union members, including closing some of these facilities or whatever, then they're going to be sending a message around the country. I, Knowing how ruthless this company is, I can guess which of those two is going to happen. And Starbucks is a good example. As the Starbucks unionization efforts were happening, cutting employee hours, they're adding other employees at the same time so that they can basically stack the elections. You're going to see this kind of stuff happening around the country where they're going to be punishing people who undergo these collective bargaining efforts, these unionization efforts. That's my guess about where they go from here. And I think you might see, knowing that this company, they're gonna, you're going to see a whole scale reboot of the team that's involved in this because it does seem like they had uh, major incompetence at the highest levels of this company in their anti-union efforts. Yeah. yeah and previously um, at the Staten Island location, as you mentioned, Corey, uh, they spent more than $4.3 million in anti-union consultants. They were texting employees with uh, anti-union messages. They had mandated meetings about it. They even arrested Smalls, the guy who organized everything for trespassing when he was handing out food. And so I think that it's probably likely that we'll see these efforts expand and perhaps get even more aggressive in other locations. They need to get a true union buster like you to deal with this situation. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't. I like once again. I'm not. I, I'm sympathetic to these guys. Uh, I'm sympathetic to these guys. Well, speaking of labor, we've all heard the old saying: if you add seven million jobs, but no one hears you say it, does that help your poll numbers? For President Biden, the answer seems to be no. And there may be a couple of reasons for that. Uh, with such strong job numbers coming out of March. What is going on here? Why can't the Biden administration seem to convince people that he's doing a good job on the economy? Right. And so just to to put some numbers behind this, the U.S. added 431,000 jobs in March and the unemployment rate is down to 3.6%, which is compared to 3.5% in February 2020. So on on many employment numbers, including labor force participation, we're getting closer and closer to the pre-pandemic levels. And CNN and Moody's have like a back to normal index, which puts the economy at 95% where it was pre-COVID. So you would, on a lot of these metrics, right, the economy is getting back to where it was. But obviously, one of the most glaring stats out there is inflation, right? And I think you've got this this tension between the fact that we're adding jobs and the fact that inflation is going up. And they're actually related, obviously, because the lower the unemployment, the more workers can demand in wages, and the more they demand in wages, the more prices will go up as well. Not that that's necessarily the most significant driver of inflation, but it can be a driver. And what's interesting is that when you ask voters about this, voters by a small margin are more likely to say that we've lost jobs over the past year than that we've gained jobs. So voters are not seeing uh, in their everyday lives this improved economy. They, they actually, they're not even perceiving job gains when we're having pretty significant job gains over the past year. Yeah, it's roughly only um, a quarter of voters who 
think that we are adding jobs, which is correct. But at the same time, there's the issue of the labor force participation rate, where this has already been on a downward trend where less and less people were actually actively seeking work. And then during the pandemic, it plummeted and it still hasn't really come back to where it's been. And I think that that's just translated into a ton of staffing shortages, which I wonder if that's what people are conflating, because we know that there is inherently an issue with job matching up in uh, in our market. And so that hasn't translated into unemployment per se, but there are huge gaps in our labor force. And I think we've all kind of felt it, like whether you're sitting at a restaurant and there's like one waiter there. Um, and there, it's led to McDonald's having a $500 sign-on bonus at some locations. Truckers in Portland got a 30 grand sign-on bonus. Um, and, you know, there's a ton of different factors behind that, whether it's people who are being dubbed epiphany quitters who during the pandemic decided I'm not doing something I want to do. There tends to be uh, recently a much bigger amount of people who are kind of just mismatched with jobs that are in the market. But as a whole, I think we're seeing a shift in our economy about what jobs people are willing to do or want to do. And I think there's probably somehow that's connected to people perceiving that as an unemployment issue when really it's just our economy is not reflective of the workers right now. I think and there are two different phenomena going on at once. One is the during pandemic version of this, which was mainly driven by retirements, people staying at home to care for a family member, whether it's a child, parent, grandparent, et cetera. But this trend was actually pretty stark before the pandemic. And as I looked into this, I was pretty surprised to see what was driving this. So it was actually the largest group driving uh, the decrease in labor force participation were actually men aged 25 to 54. So these are people in their peak earning years, which I found really surprising. And when you ask people why they're leaving the workforce, the number one reason given was disability or illness. I have reason to think that that might also be, and some of the data bears this out, uh, related to some trends in our country like the opioid epidemic, but we, we don't have to go into that. There's also more stay-at-home dads. You have deindustrialization. You have incarceration as a barrier to entry, which has obviously been a, a trend for a long time in our country. But I found that surprising that it's men in their prime working years mm. that were driving this number before the pandemic. Yeah, I think a lot. Of, well, you know, some of those men may become uh, stay at home fathers. Like you said, I mean, that happened to me for a year after the pandemic. I just became a stay at home father. And maybe I would have been a part of that uh, particular uh, rate of uh, decrease in labor force participation. But also, I think the, the bigger thing that I want to get to here is the Biden administration is just terrible at communicating messages. And I think that's something we've seen this entire time. If we were, if we really rank how good or bad they've done at certain things, it hasn't been the worst administration in the world, but it's just the communication. They just can't seem to explain to us how good they are doing. If I was Biden, I'd be out there every single day saying, look, look at the, look at these low unemployment. Remember when Trump said lowest unemployment rate ever, like technically there are 10 states right now that literally have lowest unemployment rate ever. And we really just haven't heard Biden talking about it. But I guess the big question there is he could yell that all day long. It's not going to change a 7.9 inflation rate. And so if he improved his communication, would that in any way improve the outlook that people have on this situation? I think part of it is the nature of the amount of things this administration has dealt with, whether it's COVID, Afghanistan, Ukraine, you can go on and on and on. I'm not making an excuse for it. I'm just saying that they have very little room to stay on message for any significant period of time. My guess is as you head into the presidential election year, you're going to hear them 
almost exclusively talking about this. And the question is, are they going to win the day on that messaging or are Republicans going to win the day? I'll read this quote, though. The Republicans seem pretty confident in this. This is from Michael McAdams, who's the the, the NRCC's communication director, so the head of the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee's communications. And this is what he had to say to Politico. He said, nothing I've seen in my decade of working in politics has been as salient as the inflation message with voters. When Republicans are talking about people encountering rising prices every minute of every day, versus Democrats talking about bridges that might be built in three years. It's like an NFL team going against a peewee football team. I think he might be right. Yeah, I think there's no getting around um, whether he improves his messaging on unemployment. There's no getting around the fact that every time anyone pays for literally anything, whether it's just a carton of eggs, people are feeling the fact that the economy is broken. And I think obviously there's a misunderstanding and a blame being placed on the unemployment rates. But regardless, that still is a reflection on the administration in most people's minds. Um, There are some partisan numbers where 16 percent of Republicans are able to accurately identify that we actually have increased uh, the number of jobs versus 36 percent of Democrats. But in the end, I think everyone is just feeling the reality of our economy right now on a very personal level. And I don't know if messaging can really get around that. Yeah. And to add to that partisan uh, nature of this, there was a Pew survey that asked voters at the beginning and the end of the Trump administration, how they would rate the economy or the beginning or near the end of the Trump administration. And 18% of Republicans rated economic conditions as good or excellent during 2016. 81% did in January, 2020, whereas Democrats didn't change their views at all pretty much during that same period of time. And so it shows you just how stubborn people are in the face of data, right? Like same economy, but you know, your political party basically determines how you view that economy. What a nice little gift inflation is going to be for Republicans when these elections come up. Speaking of jobs, I thought comedian Louis C.K. was pretty much unemployed after getting effectively (laughs) canceled for sexual misconduct. Not only is he still working, He just won a Grammy Award for this year's Best Comedy Album. As you might imagine, that's getting some backlash online, as well as a lot of takes that his win somehow disproves the very existence of cancel culture. Okay, so what is our read here? Why is Louis C.K. winning Grammys? Okay, well, without getting too into the details, we'll let him say it for himself. Um, But this goes back to a 2017 scandal that the New York Times broke around uh, sexual misconduct allegations from five women. So let's throw to the clip here. If you ever ask somebody, (laughs) may I jerk off in front of you? And they say yes. Just say, are you sure? (laughs) That's the first part. And then if they say yes, just don't fucking do it. Just, <laughs> just don't do it. Because look, whatever you're into, okay? Because everybody's got their thing. Whatever your thing is, I don't know. You all have your thing. I don't know what your thing is. You're so fucking lucky that I don't know what your thing is. <laughs> do you understand how lucky you are that people don't know your fucking thing? Because everybody knows my thing. <laughs> everybody knows my fucking thing now. Obama knows my thing. Do you understand how that feels? To know that Obama was like, good Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that was kind of a funny joke at the end. But but this is gross. Um, Louis C.K., he goes on after that clip basically to try to make 
grand excuses for what he did to just basically say, look, this is just a thing I have. It's a, a kink. It's just something that, you know, I'm, I'm doing. He doesn't mention his victims. He doesn't in any way even acknowledge how they may have f felt about this. And my whole thing is a lot of people have said for many couple of years now that, oh, well, Lucy K wasn't that wrong. He didn't actually assault anyone. It's not my place to tell those women whether or not they felt like they were assaulted in that moment. Like if they felt mentally uh, and emotionally traumatized by that event, then it's their place to say that. And so I think the most disgusting thing about this wasn't even so much that Louis C.K. basically took no blame and just went on to this rant and tried to make a comedy out of it. I think the most disgusting thing was the audience. I feel like the fact that people actually laughed at this and thought it was actually funny. I mean, that may say you more about laughed, cancel. Though. I laughed at the Obama thing. Yeah, the Obama yeah. thing was funny. That yeah, was yeah. funny. I mean, because that probably was Obama's reaction to this. But, right. but no, I just thought his excuse, I mean, because we only played a little bit of the clip, his excuse just gets really, really bad. He basically just says, you know, this is just my thing and I'm sorry, but, you know, I'm not really sorry. I, I think I have more questions on this than I have answers. Like question number one is like, how do we treat the misconduct of, of famous people and artists, right? I, an example I always come back to is Michael Jackson, right? Where to me, we're incoherent as a society on Michael Jackson versus R. Kelly, right? Like R. Kelly, I don't even know how to even describe it, but committed horrendous acts of, uh, you know, sexual misconduct or rape. And Michael Jackson very credibly, allegedly uh, molested children. And to me, like, I go, there's not a place I go anymore, a party where, like, people aren't playing Michael Jackson still. And, I, and I've never got an answer from somebody as to why Michael Jackson is still being played. But, like, if you play R. Kelly, everybody's like, whoa. Like, maybe, maybe you have an answer, but... The difference being that R. Kelly... We knew for many years what he was doing. He kind of admitted it in many songs and in many instances. Uh, Michael Jackson was never convicted of, of those crimes. In fact, he was acquitted of those crimes. And there are many people who just don't believe he actually did that. I'm, I'm, but I'm after not allegedly he paying did. off the kids' families, right? That was the first time around. Yeah. Second time around, he was, he was acquitted. But still, isn't that suspicious? And also, like, how much Very of it much matters so. like that R. Kelly quote unquote admitted to parts of it. Like if it's credible allegations, they're credible allegations. To me, like any reading of Michael Jackson's allegations, they seem like there's a lot of smoke there, if not fire. And it's one thing if somebody were like, hey, I don't believe Michael Jackson did it, which is certainly, you know, somebody's prerogative. But a lot of people I know who do believe Michael Jackson did it still play his music. And so I think the well, question is, so they think the question is why, right? And I think like, where do we draw the line when it comes to significant pop culture figures? So that's question number one. Question number two is, like, how do we think of redemption for somebody who does something where they're not accused of a crime and arrested versus somebody who does, right? Like, we, we as a society know you go to jail, you come out. We're generally more and more accepting of people uh, reentering society and having paid their dues when they go to prison. But we don't really have a mechanism for people who've done terrible things and how they would, you know, undergo some kind of retribution for things that aren't necessarily crimes that they've been uh, charged with. And I think that's, we need some kind of language and, and system around that. Yeah, and I agree that we're pretty incoherent on the way that we um, kind of apply these standards. Uh, I think Chris Brown would be an example because he physically assaulted Rihanna in 2009 and he's been nominated 12 times for a Grammy since. He won the best R&B album in 2012. And, you know, I can hear the counter argument that he wasn't addressing that assault in the music itself versus Louis C.K. is actually talking about the allegations and the content. But then again, I mean, I think the question comes down to do, 
do we banish someone from society entirely? And is this going to be in the context of a comedy show, the perfect PR sort of situation? And would we have preferred him not to address it at all? I don't know. And after um, since 2017, this is the first major award he's won or even been nominated for. And so he's kind of been sidelined since 2017. And I don't really agree. Um, The Cut, Rolling Stone, The Daily Beast are all saying this is proof that cancel culture doesn't exist. But for someone who did have a really booming career leading up to these allegations, clearly he's had a huge gap in time. And I'm not familiar with whether he's made any other public statements. I think um, that's something that could potentially... He he issued something that was way more pointed right after it happened where he issued an apology. And I don't don't think that matches exactly what his his stand-up, like the sort of tone and tenor of his stand-up. But should it match his stand-up? Like, does he need to go out there and be like, here's my disclaimer about my sexual assault thing from years ago? Like, I I don't... I mean, should he have addressed it? That's a separate question, but it's definitely going to be in a different tone in this situation. Well, here's our friend Liz Wolf, um, you know, sometimes co-host Liz Wolf. She said, Louis C.K. winning a Grammy after more than four years of being mostly sidelined does not in any way prove that cancel culture isn't real. It proves that his offenses weren't broadly considered egregious just enough to permanently disqualify him from a career. But to address something that you pointed out earlier, Ravi, about, you know, what is our bar for for celebrities? Like, what is something that a celebrity can do that's too far? I think there really is, and this is unfortunate, there's like this talent ratio to that kind of thing. I mean, if you suck, nobody cares. There's this talent quota that like once you hit, it's like, it's really difficult for people to then say, ah, oh, man, that 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 guy, you know. But I agree, and that's you know, what I'm kind of have a problem with. I don't know if Lucy yeah. K meets this barrier because I listened to this entire special last night and I laughed a couple of times. The Obama joke was funny. I laughed a couple of times here and there, but I would say 70, 80% of the time I just wasn't laughing. It felt like a very amateurish attempt of him to get back on the horse. It just didn't feel like the best comedy album. But if I, that's the best comedy album of the year, then comedy but sucks But even right Michael now. Jackson wasn't putting out good stuff in his later years anyway. And what I think, are you talking about? Invincible <laughs> is one of his best albums. <laughs> like, well, I think it was just, I'll let the listeners decide on that one. But part of part of what you're saying is what I have a problem with is it, the, the talent, the, the, the amount of talent you have shouldn't be relevant when it comes to the morality of it all. If right? it's a serious crime, absolutely. Yeah. I absolutely agree. You know, so, uh, and so I think like, And the reason why I brought up Michael Jackson is because I think he's the most salient example of where the talent and the alleged offenses are both very extreme. Yes, and so I, I think it provides such a like an important case study for us as a society. And I think what's frustrating to me is like it's one thing if people didn't think he did it, which is like that's one thing, but it's it's another maddening thing where people are like, I did think he did it, and I'm going to continue to listen to it, but then I'm going to hold different people to a different standard. That starts to get troubling to me. All right, so we got a couple of updates. We have some people who reached out to us about some of our reporting regarding ADHD, I believe. Yeah, so um, I want to thank our listeners for constantly sending uh, sending us messages. Like one of the things we want to continue to do at the end of shows is to uh, highlight when people disagree with us because we're the lost debate and we love that. I'm not going to read the name of this person because they share um, you know personal medical information, but I'm just going to read this email because I think it's really salient. Our listener writes, beyond the fact that I have ADHD, as does my son, I take issue with the notion that parents can somehow control every outcome in their child's lives. There have always been neglectful, chaotic, absent, overworked, mentally ill parents. And unless there are more bad parents per capita now than in the past, I don't see how that correlates to a rise in ADHD diagnoses. I know ADHD can be hard to understand for people who don't experience it. It can feel like everyone has ADHD these days, but that sentiment really undermines the difficulties faced by people who have it. 
medicating children with ADHD can prevent substance use disorder and serious mental health problems as they get older, as opposed to it being a cop-out as was implied on the show. And then she thanks us for hearing her out. And I, I think this is like such an important perspective. And I just wanted to make sure we read it and, and, and gave it some airtime. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate you all for watching and listening to us today. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review and subscribe. We will see you guys next time. <laughs>